Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And it's a bit of an odd podcast this week. We're going for a instant pod after the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 1917 victory over the New England Patriots Sunday night in Foxborough. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, in the words of uh, NBC football poobah Fred Goodelli, uh, the biggest NFL regular season game in 25 years. And uh, I'm not sure we're going to do it justice because there are just so many things to cover. I realized that after writing my column uh, today, as we speak on Monday, um, that I barely mentioned Brady breaking the all-time passing yardage record in the NFL. And I don't know, it just didn't. It was almost like nobody really, it didn't occur to, to many people or anybody after this game. But, but anyway, a lot of interesting things happen on Sunday night in Foxborough. And I'm joined by Paul Burmeister, uh, my friend from NBC. We're going to break down this game. And then later on in the podcast, we'll be joined by Boston Globe sports columnist, uh, Dan Shaughnessy, um, who... And I have no idea what he thought of the game. I did not see him at the game. Uh, but he'll always have an interesting and perhaps slightly acerbic take on what we saw in Foxborough. Well, Paul, set the, set the stage for me. Where did you watch? What did you think? I watched from my couch. I, I saw you during the pregame as, as Mike Tirico was walking out of the visitor's locker room to the field. When he got to the field, I, I saw Peter King right away. So I knew it was going to be a good night, but I, I watched from my couch. Uh, I watched again last night on a repeat and I watched again this morning. And uh, before we get into the game, I, I was wondering as uh, I was getting ready to talk to you this morning, who do you think went to, to bed later last night or this morning? You or Tom Brady? Oh, that's a good, well, I will tell you this. I talked to Brady about 10 minutes before one Eastern time this morning. And, um, he told me that he was hoping to get some sleep on the plane. I, I, I'll tell you, this was, he was pleasant. He was hoarse. Uh, and he was just absolutely wiped out when I talked to him last night. He, it was the weight of playing this game, number one, and also the weight of 
basically being, uh, you know, being the center of so much attention uh, and, and then going out and winning this game, even though, I mean, Brady will tell you that, you know, if he's played whatever it is, 305 games in his NFL career, this is probably about number 248 in terms of how he performed in the game. But again, a W is a W for, for, uh, for Brady and the Bucks. The Bucks, by the way, and we'll talk about this a little bit, the Bucks are really, really beat up. We're only four weeks into the season, and they already have uh, an injury plague that is probably worse than they had all of last season. So that is going to be bothersome for Tampa Bay, I think, uh, in the next few weeks of this season. But, but Paul, let me just, if you don't mind, I'm just going to give you, you know, as I was you know, woke up a few minutes ago. I have not slept very long, but as I woke up a few minutes ago and started to think, let's see, what are we going to talk about on this podcast? The most important takeaway for me is that both teams won Sunday night. Because I feel like, I think anybody who watched this game would say that Mac Jones really did a very good job at sort of, you know, kind of, I don't even mean slaying the Brady Dragons because it's going to take him years and decades, you know, if he ever even might do that. But this was about, uh, as well as Brady coming back, it's about the New England Patriots saying to their fans and saying to to everybody who follows this team in this region and around the country it's okay we're going to be all right so i think that's that's one takeaway i think the second takeaway that really interested me exiting this game is that this was really for tom brady more about um you know enduring this game, uh, enjoying it a bit if he could, but enduring this game because it was really a difficult game for him. As he told me um, just a few hours ago, one of the things that was really hard for him is not knowing what was coming an awful lot of the time. And for a quarterback, that's very disconcerting, Paul, as you know. Um, I think if you if you scout your opponent and you really have a good feel for what your opponent is going to send your way, you know exactly uh, what is coming. But you know, Tom Brady told uh, Clyde Christensen, uh, his quarterback coach, on Tuesday at the start of the week, said, man, I've never really prepared, obviously, for New England in my career. And it's really hard. Uh, they do so many things. And the third thing, Blaine Gabbert, the backup for uh, Tom Brady, told me this. Uh, and I spent 10 to 12 minutes with him uh, on his way to the bus after the game. And I thought this was really educational. Tom Brady, Blaine Gabbert, Clyde Christensen, others in the quarterback meeting room 
basically took it upon themselves, Paul, to go out and to look at Tate going back uh, eight or 10 years to see how Bill Belichick played certain guys on that, uh, certain quarterbacks over the years. The reason they did this is because Tom Brady knew, based on his experience, that Bill Belichick was going to hit him with some stuff that isn't, you know, three or four weeks old. You know, because, you know, what happens in the NFL, teams break down the previous four opponents uh, of the team that they're about to play. Um, and in this particular case, Bill Belichick would go back years and come up with wrinkles uh, that maybe the quarterback and the offensive coaches wouldn't expect in a particular game plan. And so those are, those are a few of the things that, that I really found, I, I would say, uh, interesting above a lot of the hypey, you know, things in the stands, Brady, Brady, Brady. It was with the exception of the time that Brady brought his team out onto the field to start the game for their first offensive series and the whole stadium booed, which I thought was really cute. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> everything else, everything about last night was new England fans having a love affair with Tom Brady. Yeah, and I thought, uh, I mean, you, you bring up a lot of great quarterback points. And obviously, we knew coming in that quarterbacks were the ones we we're going to keep a close eye on. But the way it played out was even better than we could have imagined. And I start with this takeaway. And as I kind of dip my toe in the reaction pool around the nation of what people are saying about this game, I might be in the minority, but I think Tom Brady outplayed Matt Jones. And I say that because even though it was, I mean, you mentioned in the 200s for Tom's best games. He got better as the game went on, and he found a way to get better on third down. His team found a way to get better on third down as the game got even more vital in the third and fourth quarter, whereas the Patriots really struggled on those in those third down situations. And he really had two things going for him, and I don't know if this was the game plan coming in, Peter, or something they just evolved to or grew into. He had, number one, a game plan that was allowing him to throw outside the numbers and down the field a little bit. Matt Jones wasn't doing that. Matt Jones was terrific, had his best game, and I agree. The Patriots fans go home disappointed with the loss, but they feel great about what they have at quarterback. He was just working, like if you drew a, a rectangle box about three yards outside of each hash and about 10 yards down the field, they were only working in there. Uh, Brady was working much more the entire field, number one. I think that paid off when it came to third down. And number two, he had a running game. Leonard Fournette mattered yesterday, and you can't say that about any one of the Patriots running backs. So he had a couple things going for him that Mac didn't, uh, but I thought with the way he persevered and played that game, kind of like a batter who's down a one-two count the entire game but finds a way to put the bat on the ball, Brady did that the entire game on a giant stage. And I think because of that, my number one takeaway is that he did outplay a rookie who had his very best game. Yeah, Paul, I think that's that's a very good take. That actually, it's interesting. That's Clyde Christensen's take because I said, man, Brady missed some throws in this game. He did. He did. And uh, and we're not really used to seeing that. He missed more than we would normally think 
would be right, correct, everything like that. But I do think one of the things that happened in this game that that is that's that's hard to sort of put your finger on. And and again, look, I I was really surprised the weather uh, Sunday night in Foxborough because the weather forecast was for some light rain. Um, I mean, it rained pretty hard for, I'd say, at least a half of the game. It never stopped raining. You know what's funny, Paul? I was down on the field before the game, and at 7.29, I said, man, I'm feeling a few raindrops. Brady walked out at exactly 7.30 with a few teammates, and the rain picked up a little bit. And then for the whole time they were out for warm-ups, he came out 51 minutes before the kickoff, which as crazy as this sounds, uh, their PR guy, Nelson Lee said he thought he would come out about 51 minutes before the start of the game. And I was thinking hmm, about 51 minutes. That's, that's not really about that's he'll come out exactly 50. And he, did. he came out exactly 51 minutes before the start of the game, but it started raining, and then over the next 10 to 15 minutes, it, start, it, it began to rain significantly, and that's the way it was for the next four hours. It was just, and when I came out of the press box at about 4.25 this morning, it was pouring, uh, and it poured, uh, uh, I, I don't think it's raining right now, but here in Boston. But I think the way uh, the way Clyde Christensen said it, he said, listen, when you have steady rain and you're trying to play a little bit of tempo, he said the problem becomes that then they don't take the ball between plays. So each time you get a snap of the ball, the ball is getting a little heavier, a little wetter, yeah. a little bit more slippery. And he said that became an issue at times uh, during the game where it was hard to get a normal grip on the football. But I, I also think, Paul, there was one other thing about how they played and, and the way they tried basically to play this game. Okay, They really wanted Leonard Fournette to have a big role in this game because they thought and they were right about this. They thought that the defense, the New England defense, was really going to try to tee off on Tom Brady. And Josh Uche had some moments in this game. Uh, Matt Judon had a lot of moments in this game. He really played well in this game. And so their speed up front really kind of, I would say, uh, mitigated a lot of the stuff that I think they would have liked to do in the passing game. And, and Paul, I think if you want, if you notice something about this game, or at least I noticed it, you know, when, when the, when Tampa Bay was really going well in the game is when they were given some relief on first down, um, you know, by Leonard Fournette, uh, it's arguable in the grand scheme of things that that was Leonard Fournette's best game. And he hasn't had a lot of great games, obviously, for, for Tampa Bay. But that was Leonard Fournette's best game, uh, you know, was a member of the Bucs. 
Yeah, over 20 touches for over 100 yards. And what I found really interesting about his role, Peters, as the as both teams were kind of feeling each other out and they got to a point in the second half where each of the offenses were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. They came out of breaks a couple of times, pounding the ball to Fournette in the screen game and the ground games. And you just knew that Byron Leftwich and Bruce Arians on the, on the sideline, Tom Brady as well, are saying, we're going to Leonard early in this drive. We're going to give it to him and see what we can do. Another thing that stood out about the New England defense, and you've talked about it a little bit, I think it's a, it's a huge post-game storyline, is how they played Brady. And it was really fun watching pre-snap, Peter. They would be walking linebackers up into gaps and moving them around. and But, but they weren't really bringing them that often. They were often bringing three, four, five people. They rarely brought more than five, even though the majority of pre-snap looks, you could look at it and say, gosh, they're set up to bring six or seven. They only brought seven one time that I can remember in the second half. And it was on a key third down deep in the red zone. And Brady found Brady down the seam right away, just like you're supposed to do textbook against bringing seven. And that's why they were afraid to do it, because they knew Tom would get rid of the ball. It became clear to me they were much more committed to pre-snap confusion than they were to the post-snap aggression with the blitz. It reminded me. I go all the way back to 2009. I, I spent that season on the road for NFL Network, and I ended up in a conversation on Monday night with Peyton Manning after a game they won in Miami. And this is when Rex Ryan was with the Jets, and they were one of the first teams to do this walk-around junk pre-snap yeah. look where six, seven guys walk around. I said to Peyton, I'm like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Because I know you like to know pre-snap what they're doing. How do you know what they're doing? And he said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but his point was, you don't know. And you stop beating yourself up trying to know, you figure out if you're protected. Can my protection protect me if they bring all these guys? You get the protection figured out, and then you just drop back and read. And I think that's what Brady was doing. They could block it up. He figured out during his drop, you know, who was coming, who wasn't, what might be open. But I think the really good quarterbacks with that kind of defense, they don't try to figure it out before the snap because that's where the Bill Belichicks of the world want to get you with that confusion. If you don't play that game, and play the post-snap game. Don't let yourself be confused pre-snap. Right. You end up winning. And I think Brady did that really well. I'll, I'll, um, I want to read you a part of what I wrote in my column because it really addresses what you said. And, and if you love the X's and O's, this was an important part of the preparation for this game. All right, so here it is. The Bucks weren't in sync all night. But one of the plays they researched hard before the game came to fruition. Late in the first quarter, Brady lined up to see seven New England defenders milling around the line. Who'd rush? Who'd drop? Brady didn't know, but he knew he'd seen this before. This is the kind of defense Brady played in 2018 against the Vikings. And it's one of the defensive formations Brady and his band of football researchers found when going back in time. As Gabbert told me, what we did this week was look at games throughout the last 10 years of opposing elite level quarterbacks. We look back at how Brady played Denver and Peyton back in 2013. We found this defense against the Vikings in 2018, sort of like a walk around, a lot of DBs on the field. We picked games and tried to get as much knowledge as we could of what we could potentially see. It was fun. It was great. At least we were going to be prepared. 
And that was something that Brady brought to the group because Brady told them during the week, we're going to see a lot of things that I, I, I don't, I, I don't even know what they are. And I was there all the time. So we need to just use our heads. Let's go back and look at games he's played against Drew Brees, against Peyton Manning. And, and, and let's go back and look and see what he did to try to counter what they did well. <clears throat> and Paul, I think left unspoken in this is that also, let's try to look at things that immobile quarterbacks have trouble with. You know, and I think so. I think that really helped them a lot in this game because afterwards, Clyde Christensen told me, he said, Listen, not a lot. He said, A lot was difficult about this, but we really weren't surprised by a lot of things that they did. Yeah. And I think one other thing with those kind of defenses, that's a great quote from, from Blaine Gabbard. And it's fun to, to know some of the things that, that the Patriots did, you know, in the week leading up to try and get ready for. Uh, the confusion and complexity that was coming their way. Another thing to keep in mind when teams are doing that, when they're junking it up and walking around the line of scrimmage, they oftentimes don't get back out to the flat and they can't guard the sidelines. And Brady didn't do it a lot, but there were probably four or five plays, whether it was underneath to Mike Evans or kind of an intermediate to over the, over the top shot that led to a touchdown or field goal where Brady went that way because another thing a veteran quarterback knows in the moment, okay, they can do all this crazy stuff in the box. You win. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if you're bringing four or if you're bringing seven. I do know that's a soft corner against Mike Evans. And if I'm protected, right. if we get in the right protection, I'm going to take that for eight or nine yards. You guys, nice job of confusing me, but you got nobody over there. And he did that just enough. And again, uh, uh, those led to points oftentimes. And so, I go back to my original point. That's why I think he, he kind of won the day, even though he didn't have an awesome game, just because of the way he played with his mind. You know, Paul, I, I want to talk just a little bit about the scene and then about the Patriots. Um, and, and, and one of the things that I want to, that I want to point out uh, about sort of about the scene is that you know, as you know, uh, last week I went around New England. I talked to quite a few fans, and I was convinced there would be a little pocket of dissent, at at least, in the stadium on Sunday night. That little pocket uh, never really materialized, but I was convinced of that because when I went around and talked to fans, there were some who were not, um, you know, in the Brady school. There were some who were angry that he left and who, or who thought that maybe he was a little bit overrated uh, and Belichick was the real Oz behind the curtain. But I do think that when you consider everything in totality, I do think what we saw from the crowd of 65,000 is that Tommy, nobody, nobody here is to blame this is, this just happened. It's okay. We love you. We'll always love you. And it, it, it's, it's not a situation like, you know, a lot of fans in Green Bay were truly ticked off at Brett Favre in 2008 when he came back and tried to say, hey, this is my job. Aaron Rodgers, you, you, you got to wait. And, 
And a lot of Packer fans just were unhappy with his constant flip-flopping about that. But in this particular case, there was just nobody who was really in the stadium. It was mad uh, at, at, at Tom Brady. And I thought that was significant. The other one other thing about the crowd itself, you know, Dan Wetzel of Yahoo made this comment uh, and I looked around after he tweeted it and I looked around and he was right. The crowd stood for almost the whole game. It was almost, it was almost like you were at a Springsteen concert where nobody ever sits down for the course right. of the game. And that is not the way the crowd is in Foxborough usually, but that crowd stood for, you know, for basically the whole game. And I, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. I want to just say two very quick things about, about uh, the Patriots. And, uh, and then in our remaining time, remaining five minutes or so, I just like to, to hit you with, three quick questions about what happened around the league on Sunday. And, and the thing about the Patriots is that I, I believe that there are some, and there have been some, who love Bill Belichick, who love uh, everything that he's done for this organization. But honestly, in many ways, we're really uncertain about how much they have a good plan laid for the future. And if you wake up today and you're thinking about this game and you're a Patriots fan, I think you really have to say, you know, we're okay with the future. We think the future is just absolutely fine right now. And so, you know, that's, that's one thing. And then the second thing is I kept thinking to myself during the game, watching Mac Jones, what must he be thinking? What is going through his head? Uh, you know, he didn't have anything to do with it. The New England Patriots last year in the draft or last April in the draft called his name. That's it. He's not, he's sort of an outsider into <laughs> this whole thing. It's not, none of this is his doing. And yet he found himself having to compete against the goat uh, in the goat's house and, you know, he hasn't even played well here yet, <laughs> very well. And so those are the two observations I had. But I really left that stadium last night thinking that the New England Patriots are in pretty good hands. I had kind of the same feeling. I, I, I go back, I think it was 09. I was at the game at the old Metrodome when Favre with the Vikings hosted the Packers and Brett was phenomenal that night. He was, he was outstanding. The energy was even better than expected, but the whole time Aaron Rodgers, who was pretty young in terms of experience at the time, while Brett was doing great, I was like, Hey, this, this other guy's pretty good too. And it was kind of like a coming out party. I know he had played more than Mac had at that point, but uh, it reminded me of that. While the main guy, the experienced guy came out the winner <laughs> The other guy gave the other team's fan base a pretty good reason to feel awfully good about what they had going on. All right, we're going to hit three games really quick, uh, Paul. The first one I want to hit, and I did not see much of this game at all. Uh, Arizona 37, the Rams yeah. 20. That result really knocked me off my feet. I was so surprised at that, you know, particularly because – I just didn't think 
that anybody could really figure out uh, what the Rams were doing on offense right now. And Matthew Stafford didn't have a horrible game or anything like that, but right. Kyle Murray's third consecutive game of at least 75% completions for the first time in Arizona Cardinals history, any Cardinals history, a quarterback has been that accurate three games in a row. What did you see here? Yeah, 75% for Kyler Murray against that defense is tremendous. Uh, what I see with, with Kyler Murray, first of all, I think you have to look at what he's doing right now, what Cliff Kingsbury is allowing him to do in comparison to what he did last year. And his yards per attempt are up over two yards. Two isn't a big number, but when you're getting more than two, more than, uh, than you did last year, he's pushing the ball downfield with success and accuracy. And it's not just the out-of-the-pocket plays. He had the one magician-type play, I think, on a third and long where no other quarterback in the league, maybe Lamar Jackson, could have done it. But his other highlights were standing in the pocket, touch pass over the middle, drive pass to the sideline, nice touch down the field. I mean, he is playing a quarterback's quarterback position in addition to making some, some plays outside the pocket. And I think you hit it right on the head with Matthew, with Matthew Stafford. He didn't play poorly, Peter, but the way it looked in the previous month, it looked like, hey, can anybody make the Rams look pedestrian? And that's what the Cardinals were able to do. That They didn't get the best of him and make him look awful, but they made him look average, and that's doing something with that offense. You know, uh, before the games yesterday, I texted Eric DaCosta, the general manager of the Ravens, and I said, you know, of all the strange roster things that have happened in the first four weeks of the season, and of course, when you have a lot of injuries, and there have been a lot in the NFL early, you get some strange decisions, people getting signed, uh, people getting cut. And, but of, of all of them, the fact that Latavius Murray, Le'Veon Bell, and Devontae Freeman all are on the Baltimore Ravens 53-man roster. And, as it turns out, all were active and all carried the ball at Denver. And I remember thinking how, uh, how, how in trouble uh, the Baltimore Ravens were when they had that, the, the, the scourge of injuries uh, at the running back position. But look at how they have kind of solved it. You know, they, they have really gone back and look, not a single one of those guys was great, but those are the three backs who carried the ball uh, in a 16 point road win over an undefeated team. So I thought that, and I, and again, I only saw highlights uh, during the evening, but uh, I, I thought that Baltimore really, uh, that, that was an impressive showing by Baltimore. To me, it speaks to the fact that defenses, when they play against Baltimore, Peter, for the run game, their number one worry is the quarterback. All the running backs are just supplements to the quarterback. I mean, how many, how many offenses can you really say that about? I mean, maybe the one we just talked about in Arizona with Kyler Murray, but all those running backs from the back nine of the best years of their career, but they can have success because when it comes to worrying about the ground game, they're thinking about Lamar. And those other guys are kind of an afterthought. And if they pound out a C-plus kind of game, well done. Last game for a quick thought from Paul Burmeister before we go to Dan Shaughnessy. Um, Seattle, San Francisco, I was not expecting this. Now, I was not expecting 
uh, Seattle to come out and 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 look, I'm not saying it was an absolutely totally clean game, but I am saying that it was one of those games that this was one of the most important games, I think, of Russell Wilson's tenure in Seattle. And you say, how can you say that? It's week four. <clears throat> he had never lost three games in a row. And Seattle, if they lost this game, was going to be one and three in, an, in a great division, a very competitive division. They were going to be the clear cellar dwellers and coming into a short week game against the Los Angeles Rams. What'd you see in Seattle? I think it's, it's such a fun game these years when, when the Niners and Seahawks get together. There's so much. I mean, each one has its own personality, but the coaching is good. The storylines are good. At the end of this one, though, Peter, I mean, to me, it's like we have Russell Wilson and you don't. See you next time. It was just yeah. one of those kind of games. If you go to the three most important plays of the game uh, for either team, Russell Wilson's involved. He had some good runs. He had some awesome passes. His, his bottom line stats weren't great. But if you look at the highlights that mattered most, it was Russell Wilson being Russell Wilson. And there's a lot, a lot of other things that happened in that game. I don't want to simplify it to one thing. But my thought when I was looking at that game, we have, we have number three and you guys don't. So yeah. good luck. Paul, listen, thanks. We, we're going to uh, settle into a more regular uh, <laughs> podcast existence uh, starting next week. I feel like the last couple of weeks, we have been very uh, New England-centric. We're going to hit the other 30 teams, New England, Tampa. We're going to hit the other 30 teams heavy starting next week. But I really appreciate you joining me. I think that for the people who uh, really can't get their fill of both Brady, uh, the Patriots, the Bucks, um, you know, I hope they learned a little something from this. And I appreciate you breaking it down with me. Peter, get some rest. We'll do. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. But again soon. Back in the podcast with Dan Shaughnessy, the acclaimed columnist of the Boston Globe. Dan, I, I, I wonder what it's been like to be you in the last few days because you've got the Red Sox... Uh, in a very, very surprising way, at least to me, uh, making the playoffs and, in fact, hosting a wild card game this week. And in the middle of that, uh, Babe Ruth comes back to Boston. And I just, I, you know, I just wonder what it's been like for you as a sports columnist. Uh, Peter, that's a good summation right there. I mean, 
the the Brady game was the the biggest regular season game in history. You know, outside of a final day of a regular season when it, it's playoff consequences and those kinds of things. But in terms of anticipation scheduling, it's game four out of seventeen, and this thing's been circled for two years. As soon as you knew they were coming here, and then they win the Super Bowl, and uh, there was nothing like it. Uh, it was the Pope came here in 1978. And uh, that was a big deal. It was 79, actually. And he kissed the tarmac at Logan Airport. And to me, this was the, the next biggest visit from, from a, a, a head of state or a, someone that, that there was so much worship and love for um, was Tom Brady coming back to New England. Of course, very conflicted. I thought the crowd stood up in a good way. They honored him pregame and they, they adored him. And then they booed him when the game started. So I thought everybody behaved correctly in the way I was hoping. Then we, then we got a close game. So that was great. Yeah, and look, I, 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 you know, as as I uh, as I wrote a little bit about my column, one of the things I thought was really interesting was how Brady walked into his um, into his quarterback coach in, in, on Tuesday at the start of the day and said, you know, I've never obviously I've never really studied the Patriots before, like I was about to play, sure. and he said this is going to be really, really hard. And it's going to be hard because as he discovered and then went about looking at, during the week, he and his backup Blaine Gabbert and Clyde Christensen, the quarterback coach, other guys in the quarterback meeting room, Dan, they went back 10 years and watched a bunch of games from Belichick, you know, that he had play, he had, yeah. had against quarterbacks who were similar, basically great players, who are immobile, you know, Drew Brees, Peyton Manning. Sure. And, and, to, and so to try to get some clues from those particular mm. games. And, you know, actually, I wrote about a couple of them that actually came to be in this game. But that's why you know, <clears throat> I saw Brady last night for a few minutes after the game. And I have to tell you, it's the first time I ever thought he looked and sounded his age. Wow. Because he was exhausted right that he couldn't wait to get back he couldn't wait to get on the plane just to fall asleep you know he had just it, it's one thing to say hey you know big game fun all that stuff imagine being the person in the middle of the maelstrom <laughs> and yeah. and imagine at the end of the day even though sometimes he doesn't seem it at the end of the day you're still human you have to deal with all these things and you got 40 people who you've invited to the game. Every member of your family is there and everything. It's just, you know, I was told by somebody who was in the box last night that there were a lot of tears before the game because everybody was very emotional about him coming back. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to be him in that situation because, you know, we try so hard and you know, we've got all these talk radio stations and, and cable TV stations and they're just dedicated. It's like Station Tom 24-7, all of them two radio, two TV. And then you've got guys like myself and yourself, you know, trying to reach out to anyone ancillary connected to the Brady's or the Belichick's or the Crafts, And you're pulling in all those stories. You know, Seth Wickersham's book comes out in a good timely fashion for that, adding fuel to the fire. Karen Gregan talks to, to Alex Guerrero, gets that. You know, Tom Curran talks to Tom Sr. We had quotes from from Brady's dad and Belichick's sons, you know, we had the whole thing going. You know, everyone had a comment on this thing, and it was uh, it was the, the the biblical, you know, 
story of, you know, the mentor and the protege and the, the whole thing. It, it just, it had so many layers. And uh, I was hoping for a close game and to see some of Bill's genius or whatever come out. And in the middle of it, we, I think Patriot fans identified the next guy in a good way. They see Mac Jones complete 19 straight passes and have a couple of touchdown drives and answer and take a tremendous beating and still hang in there. So I think people, it's unusual here, Peter, for people to be heartened by a loss and they've done it twice this year now. Dan, I said that I wrote in my column, both teams won. Yeah. Because, you know, really, if you're the Patriots, especially coming after that game last weekend, uh, which was an unmitigated disaster, coming after that game, you're saying, oh, my God, is this going to be 49 to 3? And look, this was a stoink from being one of the great wins in Patriots history, honestly. And, and, and again, my biggest problem with the Stoink is that I don't understand why on a rainy night with a little bit of a crosswind that Bill Belichick will try a 56-yard field goal. Yeah. The guy whose plant leg isn't totally healthy. But, you know, I digress. Uh, that's, a, that's more of a, of a micro thing on a macro day. I, I just, I exit this saying that the emperor still has clothes on and that Mac Jones kind of saved Patriot nation from despair. Absolutely. It's very rare. You know, we're not into participation trophies around here. I mean, you, you know, the standards are high and they'll crush you for, for not producing. And you've got a team now that's lost three home games. The first one, a horrible loss when Harris fumbles and last night, I, but I still think I, I'm feeling good about them, which sounds weird. It's a 17-game season. I don't know. It's a weird year. They're, they're probably not going to make the playoffs. But I, this looks like something you can build on now. And, and like you said, the emperor has closed again after Belichick taking a beat down for a long time around here. I think people feel restored by him. He used the, the rain as a 12th man, whatever, but figured out some things. Tom didn't throw a touchdown pass. And you were, like you say, it was a competitive game and you were up and down the field at the end. I, I love that game. I just, I did not expect to. I was hoping it would not be a route and uh, I could live with either team winning at the end. It would have been a better story here if the Pats won, obviously, but it was a, it was great theater and everybody got what they wanted as far as I was concerned. Hey, Dan, how do you stand now uh, on not necessarily Brady's legacy in New England, but exactly how it ended. Do you understand it? Do you still think there are things that are going to be unearthed, you know, seven books from now in 2035? <laughs> There's a lot of things that I don't think will ever be unearthed because the parties are all carefully guarded. I mean, you know, Bob Kraft's always the one willing to talk and, and he's kind of got his truth out there in the Jeff Benedict book. And we know what Bob's truth is. And, and Bob likes to have everybody like him in both ways. He's a very agreeable guy that way. And he was hurt by it, but, but with Bill and Tom, I think the, you know, the, the lines are drawn and the walls are there. And I don't think we're going to learn a whole lot more. They're careful. They had, they do have respect for each other. I wasn't there. I've, I've heard about Bill going in to visit Tom. You probably saw the whole thing for, for 20 minutes so that I want to know more about that as things unfold. To me, that's that. Dan, I'll tell you one thing about it. Um, When I asked Brady about it at about one o'clock this morning, 
one of the things he said was, look, some things are private, should remain private, that will remain private. So, and you know what I thought to myself? Good. Yeah. Because it should. You know, if you, if you have um, a private meeting, let it remain private. I just hope it does. But I, yeah. do, I do think one of the things that happened is that Bill Belichick had never met face-to-face with Tom Brady in the last 18 months. Never. Ever since that fateful night where uh, he's not available and Brady's got to talk to him on the phone. They had not seen each other. They hadn't been, they had not been in the same room. And look, as you know, they're not close anyway. They're very close, you know, for years in a football sense, you know, as coach and quarterback, but they're never, Hey, let's go get a pizza. So, so that was a real significant thing. And, and Belichick is the one who asked for it. Belichick is the one who did it. And Blaine Gabbert, the backup quarterback for the, the uh, Bucks said that he was sitting with Mike Evans, Antonio Brown, and Chris Godwin after the game, just sort of dissecting the game. And they look up, and there's Bill Belichick walking through the locker room. And Gabbard said that he said, are we seeing what we think we're <laughs> seeing right now? And yeah. he said, first of all, coaches, opposing coaches, don't usually walk into a locker room, uh, no. the other locker room after the game. But Bill Belichick, so he said everybody took notice, and and I, I forget which one it was, said, uh, maybe he's here to see Tom. Yeah, maybe he was. But I think it was a little peace pipe situation. I love that. I mean, that that's more than I knew right there. And, I mean, go hard with that, Peter, because that's like – that's gold around here. And and I'm just still recovering from last night and getting ready for baseball. But that 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 demonstrates to me a measure of respect – that if you don't yeah. like each other or whatever, at least a, a, a meeting like that in a, in a moment like that, that shows me respect that regardless of our personal differences or how things ended, we did all these things together. And you know what? We still got that. And we can be professionals and adults. And, and, and there's too much history to just be taking shots at one another from a distance. What'd you learn about Mac Jones in this game? Peter, again, maybe I'm getting soft in my old age and too easily, you know, satisfied here I, I love this guy i just everything the accuracy is what i love the pocket presence taking the hits coming back for more i worry about how that goes over the long haul they're not doing a good job protecting him i thought josh's game planning opened it up a little but the 19 straight passes the seven for seven on the drive the two answering the td drives i i just i love everything about him the way he comports himself at the podium afterwards um no nonsense very Patriot-like, and I think some of that was from Saban or just the way this kid starts off, the way he's raised in Jacksonville and, and on up. But, I mean, he's not going to be Marino or Burt Jones or the rifle or whatever, but I, I love watching him. And to me, it is to, mildly reminiscent of an early Brady. I don't think he's going to be Tom Brady, but Brady in 01, 02, 03, sure, the tight ends, the, the running backs, the check downs. I just this is the this is that game. Um, I'm going to finish and ask you two baseball questions because, of course, I'm into baseball. So I don't, as I look at this, the, 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 the sort of the massacre of the Red Sox by the Yankees a couple of weeks ago is pretty fresh on my mind. <laughs> How can the Red Sox and Nate Evaldi, who's one great start 
one bombing is yeah. only, uh, how is how is Nate Evaldi gonna gonna beat the Yankees at Fenway on Tuesday? Evaldi had almost impeccable numbers against the Yanks until that Friday night start a week and a half ago, and they let him up in that game. His big stinker of the year, but he's healthy. I think. They know one another almost too well. This is like the old yeah. days. They've seen each other a lot. I think this will be his seventh start against them this year. Sale never pitched against him. Now, Sale was hurt, but Sale came back for a soft landing and pitched against the Orioles three times, the Nationals, the Twins, the Mets. They wouldn't let Sale go near the Yankees. And now they, they may have him for an inning because he only went, I don't know, two and two and a third yesterday, whatever that was. But um, uh, Valdi, Yanks... It could go either way. The history is mostly in his favor. Garrett Cole with the Sox, they've, they've, they've cuffed him around for the most part. And he had three bad outings in September. So you have all that. And then this cast of, you know, all the big thumpers that they have. Red Sox have a chip in their shoulder. <clears throat> they feel disrespected. You know, they're like every team, as you know, that's how, you know, the UConn women basketball at the end. Oh, nobody thought we could do it, you know. So you know, we, get, we get that from everyone right now. And we're used to that. But uh, I have geeked up for this game in a big way. And I just, it's raining like hell here today. And you saw it last night and I think it'll be done by tomorrow night, but it'd be nice to have a good day for it. And uh, again, Boston, New York, one game with winner goes on, loser goes home. It is, it is 78. It is game seven in, in 04. We got all those, all those components here and it just doesn't get any better. And to have this on the heels of Brady, that's why I'm hoarse and and busy and just, so happy to be talking to you. Dan, uh, you're writing a column about Bucky Dent, also known as Buck, Bucky Bleeping Dent. And uh, I want to know, give me a little preview of what Bucky Dent is like now and what he sees in this game tomorrow. Is there a Bucky Dent moment in this playoff game? We talked about that specifically. and uh, You got a prediction from him. And I, he also picked out who might be Bucky Dent uh, circa 2021. We went all the way. We had a deep dive on this. He talked about his middle name. He's very happy. Because you know how they tape the names over the players' lockers, the visiting clubhouse guys. And when he would come in, it would be B.F. Dent over his locker mm-hmm. anytime he played in Boston after that. So he'd, take, you know, he'd try to order a, a, get a dinner reservation or hotel and be rejected when he gave his name over the phone. It's it's very real. Forty-three years later, here and uh, and the notion that they—you may not remember—they they trotted him out before Game Seven in two thousand and four when the Sox roared back and won the three in a yeah. row. George Steinbrenner was so desperate that they brought Bucky F. Dent out to throw out the ceremonial first pitch, and then Kevin Brown started, and they should have left Dent on the mound because <laughs> Kevin Brown just got lit up. <laughs> he said, "Billy Crystal told me you were the, you were our best pitcher tonight." And uh, that game was over early. Damon hit a grand slam in the second inning. It was six nothing, and it was a jailbreak. So, yeah, he's he's a very good sport about it. He's down in Florida. He's in Bradenton. He's living the good life and a wonderful guy. And 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 Peter, this will infuriate Red Sox fans, but he and Torres, they're like uh, Penn and Teller. They're like they they take it on the road. I mean, Mike Torres is such wow. a good sport. I didn't. Know they were that. always doing appearances together. Bucky built a Fenway Park replica in Delray Beach for his baseball school, 33-year academy down in Delray, and built a replica Fenway. And opening night was in 1989, and Mike Torres agreed to come back and dedicate the field by pitching to Bucky and having him hit a home run instead of the new monster. You know, 
That's the degree to which that would be like Buckner recreating the error. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you just can't make the stuff up. That's, you know, it's interesting because it reminds me of what happened late in life between Branka and Bobby Thompson. Yes. You know, how they got to be pals uh, later in life. Why not? I, I, hey, look, you know, it's good to see, it's good to see some old traditions. I mean, how happy must Major League Baseball be oh. to have a Yankees-Red Sox game? And the other game is really good, too. The Cardinals and the Dodgers. It's four royalty franchises in baseball. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Blue, chip, blue chip programs all the way. It really worked out. And, and consider that at the start of the weekend, there was a chance <laughs> it was going to be Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> right up until the last day. Yes, it hey, was. Hey, listen, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit in shock that the Toronto Blue Jays did not make the playoffs. They might have been in the World Series, Peter. Team in baseball. Might have, been, might have won the World Series. Oh my God, are they good? They're going to be yeah. good. They're going to be good for a long time. That's a that's yeah. a really really fun franchise. Anyway, Agreed. hey, listen, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Great fun, pal. All right, take care. Take care, Peter. My thanks to my friends, Paul Burmeister of NBC Sports, my constant companion on these podcasts, and also Dan Shaughnessy, the esteemed Boston Globe sports columnist. Uh, these were some really fun discussions in the wake of just a really, really interesting game, you know, on Sunday night in Foxborough. And look, all of you out there, who love some of the other 30 or 31 teams and 30 teams in football, I promise I'm not going to talk about Brady next week. It's a vow. I make this vow. But anyway, thanks so much for joining me this week. We will be back next week with another edition of the Peter King Podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.